Good evening and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. I'm Maggie Williams. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics here at Harvard. Our subject tonight is humanitarian intervention in Syria and responses to the enormous humanitarian crisis gripping that country. Our moderator, Jacqueline Baba, is a scholar and global human rights advocate who has worked for decades on issues of children's rights, migration, and citizenship, as well as protecting the rights and well-being of refugees. Currently, she is a professor of practice of health and human rights at the Harvard School of Public Health. She is also the Jeremiah Smith Jr. Lecturer in Law at Harvard Law School and an adjunct lecturer in public policy here at the Kennedy School. Formerly, uh, Professor Baba was director of the Human Rights Program at the University of Chicago. She also practiced human rights law in London at the European Court of Human Rights in France. She has written extensively about young transnational migrants and the challenges faced by children who are without a state. Professor Baba serves on the board of the Scholars at Risk Network and the World Peace Foundation. And she was a founder of the Alba Collective, an NGO working with rural women in developing countries. I am pleased to introduce Professor Jackie Baba and begin tonight's conversation. Jackie. So, good evening and welcome, and thank you all for being with us here for this uh, important discussion, I think, about one of the most critical um, humanitarian and human rights issues uh, facing us, and hopefully one of the most important and devastating that we'll ever face in our lives. I think we all know, um, as was just mentioned, about the dramatic um, loss of life that has um, occurred since the outbreak of uh, the conflict in Syria five years ago. We also know about the massive displacement of people, the trauma, the suffering, the destruction of medical facilities, and the devastating impact on the surrounding neighborhoods and the countries that border Syria. Um, so we know all that, and we also, of course, are well aware of the dramatic impact that this very large-scale human tragedy has had on Europe, um, on loss of life in the Mediterranean, and on the future, perhaps, of the EU as we've known it. So there's a lot that many of us know, and I'm sure many of us in this room are following this evolving tragedy uh, with enormous concern. But we're very privileged to have with us today two actors who actually know a lot more than most of us, certainly a lot more than I do. And so it's really a great opportunity for us to hear um, from the front lines, uh, both of action, but also of thought and policy development about how we should think about next steps. So I'm absolutely delighted and honored to uh, introduce my two illustrious colleagues, President Peter Maurer, sitting to my immediate left, who is the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, president Maurer has a long um, and illustrious uh, history of uh, public service as a diplomat, as a, as a figure in, in politics in his own country, Switzerland, and um, also as a very important thought leader and contributor to humanitarian uh, law and humanitarian thinking. Um, before uh, he took up this position as president of the ICRC, he was uh, the foreign secretary in uh, Switzerland, 
And before that, and that's the capacity in which he had more contact with us here at Harvard, he was the Swiss representative, or the Swiss ambassador, I should say, to the United Nations. And in that capacity, we had the pleasure of, of many visits uh, and, and many interactions on a range of topics with, uh, with President Mauro. So it's really great to, to have him back and to, um, to, to have the opportunity of learning from him. And uh, to, to President Maurer's left is Professor Ignatieff, who of course needs no introduction in any audience, and certainly not in this audience. Suffice it to say that like uh, Peter Maurer, um, Professor Ignatieff straddles the two worlds of kind of thought academy and scholarship and practice and pragmatic uh, um, calculation and th th that combination I think is what's going to make this conversation so special. So the marching orders for today are very simple. Um, my two colleagues will start off with a conversation um, and uh, when, that, uh, when I bring that conversation to a close we'll then open up to all of you for your uh, questions. Um, and we will finish promptly at 7.15 because both, both the panelists have planes to catch. So let me just start off, Peter, if I may, by um, asking you, I, I made some of the most obvious points that we all know about this terrible situation, this terrible humanitarian crisis in, in Syria, but I gather that you are recently back from Syria. So I wonder if you could just kick off by giving us some of your impressions of the situation as you've seen it on the ground very recently. Thanks, uh, uh, Jackie and uh, colleagues. Good to be back uh, here at Kennedy School. Uh, the impressions are mixed impressions. On the one side, I sound like a broken record uh, when I talk about Syria because the fundamental dynamics that we have observed over the last couple of years have basically remained the same. We have the impression each and not only the impression, there are facts that we do each and every week more than the week before. And when we calculate what we have achieved at the end of the month, the situation is worse. So the dynamics are quite particular in the Syrian crisis. It underlines the ability of an organization like ICRC to expand humanitarian spaces. But behind the development of the conflict dynamics, the constant violation and disregard of international humanitarian law, the means of warfare, of indiscriminate attacks and inclusion of civilians into warfare, the obstacles for humanitarians to deliver neutral and impartial humanitarian services in all parts of Syria, the limitations of access that we have to detainees on all sides of the front lines are massive inhibitors which uh, would allow us to have a satisfactory action uh, of humanitarian response to the Syrian crisis and to contribute meaningfully to stabilize lives and livelihoods of Syrians where they are at the present moment. As I come back from uh, Syria, there is also, I was just the week before the so-called ceasefire cessation of hostilities or as we call it, partial cessation of hostility. Uh, and the week before this was still a full combat week, but still a couple of signs which I make me slightly more hopeful. And it sounds maybe a little bit cynical, but one thing which I thought was hopeful is that all sides seem 
extremely exhausted. And somehow I have never in the last four years sensed on the government as well as on armed opposition group sides a feeling of uh, enough is enough. And it is certainly what came as a powerful message of the ordinary Syrians I met. I think while at the beginning you still had all those conversations legitimizing the war on the one side or the other side, exhaustion was the dominant impression uh, with which I can back. And out of exhaustion, I thought we had a much more meaningful and concrete discussion on what should be done and what the parties should do in order to allow us to have more meaningful humanitarian action. Michael just asked me whether it has materialized in better things before we moved in here and, and I come with a mixed feeling here as well. Some things we have been able to do but not again not enough, it was had not been a sea change in expanding our humanitarian operation. Maybe a last thing which struck me on both sides and which is positive, while uh, it was my first visit, visit to Syria and in my second and third visit to Syria every second word was terrorist, whether on the one side or the other side. And I thought Terrorism has been al almost evacuated from the discussions I had. People were really concerned about their daily lives and even the government and opposition forces and the armed actors were concerned about the situation. They know that the health systems are disintegrated. They know uh, that the country is in, uh, in complete rubble and that any normal life in Syria will not come back anytime soon. So I had this mixed feeling on the one side of observing similar or same dynamics and on the other hand if you watch carefully of maybe some signs of hope or more sober discussion on where Syrians want to carry forward their country. I just had a question Peter following on on that. Um, has the cessation of hostilities, the partial semi kind of might be cessation of hostilities, whatever you call it, has it made actual humanitarian access to besieged areas on either side of this conflict easier, yes or no? I wasn't clear what you were telling me. The negotiations around the cessation of hostilities uh, were connected to humanitarian frontline negotiations to access some of the most affected parts of besieged areas. And so we, we had, together with the UN, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent and the ICRC have negotiated accesses and significant humanitarian deliveries to some of those besieged areas and this was kind of an accompanying positive humanitarian measure to somehow underline the seriousness of the parties with regard to the cessation or partial cessation of hostilities. But again, we know that this is only part. I mean, there are still large parts of Syria where humanitarian actors do not have meaningful access. There are still certainly half a million at least Syrians who are 
living in completely cut off besieged areas and 3.5 to 4 million Syrians in difficult to reach areas which haven't seen any meaningful humanitarian assistance and where we didn't see the sort of sea change maybe the international press and the whole advocacy around the ceasefire and the publication of the ceasefire would have uh, expected. I mean, when you read the New York Times and uh, all the international papers, you would say there is ceasefire in Syria or residual violence going on and this should lead to uh, an influx, a massive influx of humanitarian assistance to stabilize at least some of the worst parts and this has not happened in that quality sea change that I would have hoped for or I would have expected. So, so what kind of humanitarian assistance is actually getting through and what kinds of humanitarian assistance are still impossible to deliver? Well, a, a lot of humanitarian assistance is possible to deliver and we have negotiated to expand basically the portfolio of uh, the, the humanitarian kits that we are able delivering. Now, uh, you have watched and Michael has watched the Syrian uh, conflict for a long time and you know that there are big nuances which are more than nuances, qualitative differences. Uh, we are relatively good in delivering water and sanitation services in Syria today. It's covering large part of the territories and we have an ability to operate on water and sanitation in many parts of Syria. Uh, on food and shelter it's not bad either. Uh, on medical it's a continued struggle. Our medical kits are getting larger because we are negotiating the composition of the medical kits with the parties to the conflict. So we do more today. You but Yes. What's in the bag? Yes. You're kidding. No. With both sides? Yes. Holy smokes. Now it's uh, one of the realities in the Syrian conflict that, I mean, ideally what the concept of humanitarian action according to the Geneva Convention would say that there is a space for neutral, impartial and independent humanitarianism which would base its kits and deliveries on needs assessment, an independent needs assessment. But the Syrian conflict has been emblematic in basically bringing tit-for-tat negotiation to humanitarianism. It's not that the space is offered for everything which is needed. Uh, the space is negotiated. And even in the positive examples that I mentioned, it is well known that in Madaya Kafraya and uh, the, the villages that we are, were able to service first after the cessation of hostilities, that the delivery of those goods that we were able to deliver, in the, the distribution of those goods were tit for tat. And this is new humanitarianism in the, in the age of communication. The both sides were watching scrupulously when one package was unloaded from a truck, that in the other part, it would also be a package unloaded. Right. And when the one package stopped on the one side, another package stopped on the other, and you had to negotiate they're again. They're yes. talking on the cell yes. phone. Holy smokes. It's constant 
on-spot, on-site, time, real-time negotiation and delivery of tit-for-tat humanitarian delivery. So it's a complex situation. It's more complex than in many other situations in which uh, we, we negotiate. It's kind of emblematic of a new form of humanitarian reality which puts a lot of pressure on negotiating, negotiating the content and the package and have still a perspective of relatively neutral assessment on what is needed and then the negotiation continues upon delivery uh, to the sort of the detail of the kilo uh, of what is delivered. What needs to change here? What kind of pressure from the Russians on the Syrians, Iranians on the Syrians, American putting pressure on their very, it's a proxy war, right? So they're, the people who are doing the tit for tat are, are to some degree responsive to pressure from external actors. What needs to change so that access can open up a bit? Is this gonna be part of a peace process that goes on? What, what do you need the outside actors to do to get these tit-for-tat guys to loosen up a bit and open it up so more people can get assistance? Well, we are and have always been relatively skeptical to link the progress on humanitarian assistance and protection work too closely to the political deal uh, on the future of Syria. It's in our concept a recipe for failure and if we are in tit for tat and, and still extremely reluctant humanitarianism that is able to unfold in Syria, it's because we think that humanitarian assistance and protection work has been highly politicized. And it has been linked exactly to the concept on whether and how Syria should look like in the future with the most prominent questions which is dealt with at the political negotiating table on what the future of the Syrian president is. Mm. And if you link humanitarian work to the political agenda on the future composition of the Syrian government, on the timing of the elections, on the uh, process which should lead to those elections, the inverse movement that we have observed over the last two years was basically that you take hostage humanitarianism of the non-progress of the political process. On the other hand, if there is strong political process, you can imagine that this is a good sort of precursor and condition under which also better and greater humanitarian space can be negotiated. But this is the point where I, why I came to Harvard this time also is to interact with many of you here at Harvard on our effort to enlarge the template of humanitarian negotiation. And I think it needs trust of on both sides to enlarge again the space for neutral and impartial humanitarianism and to move the cursor from every 
action is to the detailed monitor and paralyzed, paralyzed in parallelism of negotiation to a larger space where there is trust that humanitarians deliver according to needs and mm -hmm. impartial needs on, on, on both sides and on all sides where, where needs are in Syria. So we are defending and advocating much more a separation of a humanitarian negotiation from a political negotiation, while we shouldn't exclude that everybody looks at both processes, but they follow different rules, different mechanisms, and I think it's good that it is like so that way. I, I don't want to, you got to get us back on track, but I, just on this final point, you're telling me you don't want Kerry and Lavrov to negotiate this. You don't want the humanitarian issue of access to be taken into the Geneva, Vienna, whatever the processes are. You want to, so if you don't want the big guys to do this, who's going to widen this out? Because you, at the moment you're negotiating with people over every damn box, right, on the ground. How do you, how do you create the political pressure or some kind of pressure to allow you to get the shipments through yeah, without involving Lavrov and Kerry and all the big guys? I didn't say uh, that I didn't want them involved. I, I just said uh, if the humanitarian negotiation is intrinsically linked to the progress of the political negotiation, uh, we will have the reverse effect and we have seen the reverse effect over the last two years. Uh, the question is a delicate one uh, and it's where humanitarians are always in a big dilemma. We are calling for political solutions to the problems which we can't deal with and where we try to mitigate the consequences. But if politicians basically start themselves to work the details and to decide in Geneva on what the needs in besieged areas are, then the level of intervention in politics becomes again controversial. So the question is, is there, what is the kind of political agreement which gives us a space with, without making the space even more oppressive? by tying it to the progress on other than humanitarian agendas. And, and I think it needs thoughtfulness and delicate handling. It, need it needs conversations between the humanitarian actors on the ground and the political actors on the table. Uh, I'm in constant contact with Stefan de Mistura mm. uh, uh, to see how does he handle the political agenda and what can he do at the table in Geneva, which is positive in terms of offering space to do humanitarian work according to humanitarian principles, and what is interventionist, uh, political interventionism into humanitarian sphere, which is counterproductive uh, in its, uh, in its could effect. Could I just ask you, we've talked about Syria, but of course the question of humanitarian intervention in the Syrian conflict goes way beyond Sy Syria itself. 
um, it seems to me what we're seeing is, is just within the humanitarian space alone a complete disregard, um, nearly a contempt for the principles that have been established for so many decades, uh, even by the European Union. So in that context, when you have a sort of really a disintegration or a very, very inadequate humanitarian intervention in the neighboring area, and then a sort of what would seem to be a flouting of basic humanitarian principles in, you know, in the new grand bargain. How does what, leaving out the big actors, leaving out the politicians, what is the moral force of what we've sort of established as the sort of uh, a key, if you like, or the, the kind of banked principles of humanitarian? What's the force of that now? And how can one leverage that? Um, are you... Are we saying that we're now in a new era where these old principles just now are obsolete and we have to kind of go back to some sort of drawing board? Or is there something that can really be resurrected to, to create uh, a more robust protection? I just wonder what your thoughts are, uh, in particular in relation to what's happening with, you know, with, with the EU and Turkey and also what's been happening in, in the... the, the enormous kind of uh, situation in the surrounding areas. Well, Michael has a lot to say about this as well because he has longer than I observed the development of humanitarianism. But uh, my, my view would be that it, uh, we have to be careful in describing the sort of degradation of the respect of principles and law. It's, it's inconsistent and insecure what the development really were over the last 20 years. Principles and law has enshrined in the Geneva Conventions and, and, and neutral and impartial and independent humanitarianism have been important guidelines <coughs> for our work. And we should not believe that they have informed the action of actors in the past uh, just like that. There was never a phase of respect of laws and principles. Uh, and we always were confronted with this ambiguity which characterizes our work on the ground, that on one side it's th the law to behave in a certain way, and each and every time, and we do that for decades, we had to negotiate the concrete agreements under which we were able to operate. There is, has never been a time where ICRC had a license to operate and to go where it thought it had to go. Uh, humanitarian action on the ground has always been informed by the ambition of the principles and laws enshrined in the conventions and at the same time had to be negotiated with parties to the conflict. What is more complicated today is these parties are more numerous, they are more fragmented, the landscape is more complex and complicated. Uh, it's the the landscape is more difficult to negotiate and even mathematically it's more difficult. The Taliban and the Afghan government were two parties with which, uh, were, which were structured and with which you could negotiate. This, 
Syrian situation, even the Afghan situation today is much more complicated. So one of the key tasks of an organization like a frontline responder to humanitarian assistance and protection need like ICRC is always to negotiate the best possible deal under enormous pressures from parties to conflict where the, they balance their obligations under the Geneva Conventions, which is a, a trade-off between military necessity and protection of the civilian populations. It's never been a unilateral sort of human rights approach where you would set standards to respect. International humanitarian law has always been informed by the ambivalence and the dialectics of military necessity and protection needs. And out there, we try to negotiate the best possible deals, and we have done that uh, in many times, but the conditions are different today, and that makes it a little bit more difficult. Can I go at Jackie's question in a different way? Because Jackie's a lawyer, she went at the law and was saying basically, you know, what the heck has happened? The law is, is flouted everywhere, and, and you're saying, well, let's not get sentimental. It, we've always had trouble enforcing humanitarian law. But let's step back and ask it a different way. One of the things that's so weird to me about the Syrian story, and maybe it will resonate with the students here, is this is the first horrible civil war conducted in the era of the drone and in the era of the cell phone, uh, smartphone. So that the effect of that is we have more real-time footage of atrocity in higher volumes than, than, than than anything that we've, that we've seen. This is a war that you can get. When I'm putting a lecture together on Syria, I got, I got more atrocity footage than I know what to do with, that I can run, could just continuously. And what's interesting and paradoxical is the more we see, the less we care. That is, the problem here is if you're asking why humanitarian access is difficult in Syria, one reason may be the external world has detached itself from Syria in some weird way that we can't quite understand. One of the things you notice is that the, the support for the international agencies dealing with refugees are 50% funded. I mean, it's as if everybody can see this stuff happening and the money is not flowing out of people's pockets the way it was, and it's not even flowing out from the pockets of governments. Um, so there's, I'm wondering whether you can reflect as a humanitarian on whether I'm right that there's a disconnection between the zone of safety, the zone of danger called Syria, and the zone of safety called this. Am I, am I overdoing this? Because I feel there's, I contrast this with Bosnia where if this forum was held in 1995, this place would be full of kids saying, do something, right? Flash forward to 2015, 2016, I don't get that. I don't hear that in the public. And because I don't hear that in the public, then you guys have nothing behind you politically. Syria is just not an issue. And so you don't have the political support to get the political actors to work, to get anybody to go. This charnel house is just in a bell jar. Michael, there is a part where, where I agree and one where I would 
disagree. I agree with you with the part that this is an international uh, uh, situation that has been created in and around Syria, uh, which in terms of communication and knowledge about what is happening and use of communicative tools to portray cruelty uh, has brought us into another sphere. Mm. That's obvious. Uh, I'm not so convinced about uh, the assessment that you make specific to the Syrian crisis. We are struggling all over the world in space and time for decades now with what I would call our Bermuda Triangle, that there is a huge disconnect between what we see are the needs of people from violence, emerging from violence and conflict in many parts of the world. What is on the second part of the triangle, what is the public perception and visibility of those needs, and thirdly, the funding of humanitarian activity. And there is a disconnect between the three. Uh, a lot of money goes into high visibility conflicts where not necessarily the biggest needs are. Mm -hmm. And a lot of needs go unnoticed and therefore conflicts go unnoticed which are heavily under-resourced and underfunded and underattended for decades. We had in certain months in last year, we had higher death tolls in Salvador from crime than we had in Syria from war. And at no moment was crime in Salvador at the front line and the front page of news. So the humanitarian impact of violence, urban violence, criminal violence, drug violence in some of the places causes similar suffering, but it doesn't appear at certain moments. And not to speak even about some of the conflicts in Africa which have disappeared. But in terms of number of people living at the threshold of survival would be in even a worse position than the Syrian warriors, which again is excelling by its visible cruelty of how the war is fought. So each and every conflict has its specificity and how exactly the triangle between objective needs, attention and money is handled. And you don't think that triangle has moved or been changed by modern media? You think it's the same darn triangle that you remember from 25 years ago? You don't think it's moved? Well, it, it, it has moved, but it, it moves very much with strategic attention that big powers and right. medias offer to certain conflicts and do not offer to other conflicts. And to be a little bit provocative, uh, Michael, I don't think that the Syrian crisis uh, suffers from underattention. It has been surprisingly long mm -hmm. uh, on the top attention of a humanitarian crisis. It has been cautiously counterbalanced uh, 
by the Ukrainian crisis, but this was again a strategic crisis in the middle of Europe where nobody expected it. Uh, but in, in terms of attention, Syria has been for quite some time top in terms of attention and funding and display of cruelty and a lot of other things. Is it also the case, though, that the problem in Syria is that nobody actually knows what to do? I mean, my sense of this is that the connection that has to occur is there is a, a visibility to the, to the horror, to the suffering, uh, and then there's a narrative of connection, so it's not just one thing after another. There's a story about why we should care about this. And then there's some kind of plan of action. Somebody has some idea of what you do and that the particular feature of the Syrian crisis has been a sense of uh, not only we don't know what to do, but everything that Western powers have done in relation to intervention in the last decade has made things worse. Libya, Iraq, etc. So Syria fits into a, a narrative, in fact, of disengagement, not engagement. And that, but that, and that's not your department, but it affects your capacity, it seems to me, to mobilize resources and commitment from larger powers, no? Because when you go to the capitals, nobody knows what to do about this. I mean, what they do is they throw some money at you, Peter, and say, put some Band-Aids on this. Yeah, of course, that's what uh, a humanitarian organization is. It's, uh, it's putting Band-Aid. Uh, on a, on a situation. Uh, but can I just jump in? If that is the case, then wouldn't there be more money for Band-Aids? Why is it only 50% funded? I mean, if you take the Bosnian situation, there was a clamor for intervention. Even in Libya, you know, maybe, but after Libya, I think there is this, this real skepticism about military intervention and about the role of, of, of of, of a military solution, maybe. And so why isn't there? Why, if you're right in a sense that, that Syria's on the front page of the paper, but why isn't uh, there a much more robust response to the funding? Why are, you know, the, the refugees in the, in, the, in the region, in the surrounding regions, so poorly catered for? I mean, uh, it's difficult for a humanitarian to make a political assessment, but what is obvious is that the regional and global powers are not in agreement. They do have opinions on what Syria should look like mm -hmm. uh, individually. They just don't coincide. But <laughs> collectively, they, don't, they, they only have a very minimal consensus, which is basically what is displayed at the present moment on the table in Geneva. And, and I think the table in Geneva is very interesting on in demonstrating what the consensus is. The, the consensus is that uh, there should be a table. <laughs> but <laughs> there is not yet consensus on who sits on the table and what is discussed on the table. And as long as those political ramifications are as they are, humanitarian action will be what it is. It will be kind of incremental. But I would also a little bit contest sometimes this sort of discourse that many of my friends in humanitarian action entertain. 
suggesting that uh, better respect of the law, more generous funding, higher attention on humanitarian action will solve the problem. I came back from my last trip in Syria with a strong impression that this country is destroyed in many parts beyond repair in any foreseeable future. So this will be a conflict even when it is sorted out in one way or the other politically, which will continue to have massive impact on lives and livelihoods in Syria and in the region. So it's a long-term situation with which we are dealing. And so one of the questions we ask ourselves is, beside sort of advocating for political solution, what as humanitarians are more refined and intelligent strategies which that we can entertain, which are not just quantitative increase of money. I wouldn't, I, I don't know what I would do with the double of money in Syria. I couldn't spend it at the present moment. We need to have broader consensus of what humanitarian action means in Syria. And we need to, to have other dynamics. And the question is, can we as humanitarians somehow engage in a, difficult, in a different way with community leaders, build, con build consensus from, from the bottom, try to be helpful uh, in certain communities to, to pass again the idea that not shooting at each other is quite an advantage for uh, the lives and livelihoods of communities. So it's different ways of engagement with local communities, with leaders, with armed forces, and uh, this is always a long-term perspective. And this is one of the recognitions that we have in, in engaging in the Syrian conflict. Let's not forget, in terms of ICRC's engagement in conflicts, this is still a short-term intervention. We have been in Syria working on the conflict only for four or five years. This is short time. We have been in Afghanistan for 30 years, in, in Yemen for 60 years, in Iraq for 30 years. And after those periods, you start to know people and you are sometimes more effective than in the short run. So with those very sobering comments, let it, me turn it over to you. Could I please ask people to line up? There are four mics, one, two, three, four. Um, and could people please observe the following three very simple rules? Firstly, please say your name and your affiliation. Secondly, please only ask one question. And thirdly, please make sure you ask a question that ends <laughs> with a question mark. So please, go ahead. Yes. My name is Danielle Feinstein. I'm a student in the um, MPP program here. Thank you for joining us for this important topic. Um, despite all of the things that were mentioned, I think it's clear that the global humanitarian community is failing to meet the needs of the Syrian refugee population. And I was just ask, I would like to ask for if each of you could give two or three specific reasons why that's happening. I think the situation is very complex, but as students here, we'd like to know what are the things that are standing in the way of us meeting the needs of this population that's flooding into many countries around the world? And what can we be doing to push those, to push those boundaries? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, okay, Peter. 
Is it me? <laughs> it's always you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a, a lot of things are, are standing in the way, yeah? I mean, uh, if I start with our ICRC baseline, uh, and Jackie mentioned it beforehand, respect for international humanitarian law stands in the, in, in, in the way of uh, having a reasonable uh, humanitarian activities. Uh, Syrians stand themselves in the way uh, in privileging to large extent armed conflict compared to other solutions of the conflict. So it, it needs uh, a lot of things comprehensively stay in the way, yeah? depending wh what, what you exactly look at. First and foremost, the biggest challenge is negotiating access and security for humanitarian assistance in, in the Syrian conflict. The second is engaging with the parties to respect basic international humanitarian law. And if we would have the two in, if we would be able to move the cursor on the two considerably, the Syrians at least would not be displaced to the extent they are displaced today. Mm -hmm. They still would have a difficult situation, but we would have a considerably uh, different, uh, different setup. And at the end of the day, I mentioned the word beforehand. Uh, what we feel at, at, the, at the bottom of delivering humanitarian assistance and protection services is a lack of trust. And the lack of trust which has infected the community but also the action of international actors. So it takes time to gain trust of the parties in Syria so that you can deliver and do what you are doing and this needs engagement and presence and, and finding concrete solutions. If I could just add on, on, on that, uh, the refugee catastrophe has so many features. Peter's indicated one. Uh, if we could get humanitarian access uh, inside Syria to help IDPs, internally displaced people and desperate people, we could stabilize or help to reduce the outflow. Um, so that's, that's kind of number one. Then number two, once there's outflow to Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, the issue is making sure that uh, refugee assistance is fully funded. And until late this year, it's 40%, 50% funded. You're gonna have a refugee flow to Europe if WFP, the World Food Program, cuts back the food ration. It's just, it's gonna happen. So uh, then you gotta have the Turks and the Jordanians allowing people to work and begin to uh, find employment and new lives in the frontline states because notice what Peter said, and you can see it if you look at the, the drone footage of Homs. Nobody's going back to Homs. Homs is done, or the center of Homs is done. Uh, and that's a big city, and, and he was there, and I'm sure he would confirm what I say. So yeah. there's that. Then there's the third thing going into the 
to Europe, which is just um, uh, Europe is basically running razor wire up one state after another. Not just the Visegrad countries in the east, but essentially borders are, are, are closing very <coughs> rapidly. And we will wait to see whether the grand bargain between Turkey and Germany is effectively border closure that dares not speak its name. And then finally, and I'll stop with this, the United States has taken 3,000 Syrian refugees since 2011. And this country has a great record of refugee integration and resettlement. And for security reasons, it shut it down. And this, in my view, is a humanitarian catastrophe, but it's also a strategic catastrophe because the United States is sitting watching a refugee flow which is destabilizing Europe and pretending to be a bystander in a situation where the United States for 75 years has been a crucial guarantor of the political stability of Europe. The refugee problem is not just a humanitarian issue, it's a geostrategic issue and Americans need to understand the role that America has played in European security and stability. And that's where they need to understand the refugee issue. Sorry for the speech. Normal service is now resumed. Thank you so much. Is there a question up there? Oh, no. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Uh, hi, I'm Will, a freshman in the college. And I'm wondering, uh, what do you see as the future of American engagement in the humanitarian crisis? And how might this change following the election cycle? That's for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. Go um, on. Uh, I'm sure Peter would give you the numbers, but the United States has been a long-term stable funder of ICRC over a long time. Uh, and the ICRC-US relationship is, is very close, but it's also not easy, because the ICRC is the outfit that went into Guantanamo and said, some of the things that are going on in Guantanamo and in American detention facilities after 9-11 were a violation of, of basic humanitarian principles. One of the good things about the ICRC is that it takes money from the United States and gives the United States a hard time. It also does this to many other states that are donors of the ICRC. As for the political aspects of this, uh, further to my previous question, uh, the president, in my judgment, is not going to move to do anything for Syrian refugees until after the election because he doesn't want to give any uh, political gifts that the Republican nominee can exploit. Uh, and so, essentially, uh, decent humanitarian treatment of refugees is held hostage to the American political process until after November. Then we'll see who gets elected, and it's up to the American people to decide. In the period between November and January, the pre this president, as a lame duck, has the capacity to do all kinds of things. And I hope even in that period between November and January 20th, or whenever the new president is sworn in, he'll take a lot of refugees into this country and show up and show the kind of leadership that the United States has shown in the past. That's just me, that's just my view. Yeah. Can Thank you. Peter, well, you just, like uh, yeah, yeah maybe just um, uh, one word. Of course, I, I can confirm on the one side what Michael said. Uh, ICRC, if we look at ICRC, we have one of the mo 
most elaborated and densest relationship that we have with the country is with the United States because of the multiple engagement as supporter for our assistance and protection work, but also in terms of engagement on respect of international humanitarian law in the conflicts in which the United States are involved. So this is an elaborate, dense and important relationship that we would hope will continue and further strengthen as we move forward. But I would uh, hope and expect that, uh, hopefully inspired by an institution like this one, whoever is the new president of the United States will also be a leader to reflect on the future of humanitarianism because this cannot be just reflected upon by humanitarian agencies. It needs, again, a reflection on how we deal with a world which is producing victims and having conflicts with impacts which go far beyond the countries in which the conflicts are. And this is quite a dramatic situation and everybody knows it. We have seen in decades the largest population displacements in the world. Uh, out of conflicts, uh, 60 to 70 million people are displaced because of violence. Only 15 million of them, only 15 million are refugees. 45 million are, are internally displaced. Most of those displaced are displaced in neighboring countries of conflicts, not in highly developed countries, but in poor and fragile societies. So. There is a question here out uh, where and how can fragility with which the world is confronted with in, in broader geographic region, how can we cope with this fragility? And it needs a little bit of thought work uh, and political leadership, uh, decisions on where you put money and how you hook up stabilization efforts, uh, humanitarian and development stabilization efforts in those societies, how you make the international institutions fund in order to address money to the priority issues which cause problems. It's one of the striking issues today that uh, climate change and migration are difficult to fund, but they are some of the biggest humanitarian displacement factors and humanitarian concerns and displacement factors uh, that we are dealing with. Only 15% of all money, which is, if you take humanitarian and development money together, only 15% goes into humanitarian stabilization efforts, while the big issues of fragility with which we are confronted with are typical conflicts and crises which would need much more humanitarian engagement. So there is a, a panoply of questions which will come up at the World Humanitarian Summit, which will come up at the meeting of initiated by the United States by this government on 19 of September on migration at the margin of the General Assembly. And I hope that these are initiations of processes which will bring the international community, humanitarians as well as states, to reflect more profoundly on how we stabilize a situation which is by and large uh, highly fragile, volatile, and maybe out of control. Thank you. My name is Keith McCammon. My question is about the grand bargain between the EU and Turkey. I wonder if you could speak in more detail about your opinion uh, 
I think almost any, every humanitarian organization in the world has criticized it, but some view it as the last best alternative to a deteriorating status quo. So what are your thoughts? Well, we'll have to see what the practice and executive legislation of the deal is. A lot is unclear on how it will be handled. On the one side, I I'm encouraged by all those European politicians who say that this deal should be implemented according to international law, human rights law, humanitarian law. Uh, their humanitarian agencies, many of them have expressed doubts and concerns. So we are in this process in limbo where our first and foremost priority is to engage with the European Union into a discussion and to see how exactly the deal is implemented. What are the terms of reference of the boats cruising in the Aegeus with regard to saving lives? And how is this exactly happening? And what are the protocols of saving the sh those who are picked up in the sea and where are they landing and what are the procedures afterwards and which they have options uh, to have due process and review of their status and legitimacy under which they are entitled to be in that place or another place or be uh, sent back to uh, the country of origin or the country of transit. So a lot of questions are still open in terms of uh, who does what and what are exactly the executive legislation and of course with uh, ICRC's experience and knowledge with regard to uh, some at least of the issues uh, we are interested to engage in this discussion. We want to know and engage with the European Union on detention of migrants. Everybody knows that in our view, the detention of migrants is an issue of last resort which should basically not used. And if it is used, we are interested that those detention facilities in which migrants are put are uh, humanely, uh, offer humane conditions for those who are temporarily detained. So we want to engage on a concrete discussion before we are judgmental on what exactly the degree of respect or violations of the deal as such with regard to the bodies of law for which we are responsible are. But this is a, an issue of discussions which uh, we hope to address as well as uh, other humanitarian agencies in the weeks to come. Michael, do you want to comment? Um, my name is Joseph Atterman. I'm a graduate student at Harvard Center for Middle Eastern Studies. Um, an awful lot of the discussion this evening seems to be based around the state-level discussions uh, in Syria, on Syria, and yet a third of the country is ruled by a group that is the elephant in the room at the Geneva talks um, that spurns kind of Western intervention um, or humanitarian action, and um, certainly seems to be an obstacle and a huge black hole in terms of humanitarian action uh, in Syria and will be in the future when ISIS eventually collapses. So my question is, at what point does, does the risks of humanitarian action and intervention outweigh, um, outweigh the human life on the ground? A 
you see each and every day as a humanitarian actor you ponder with each and every operation what the risk and, and needs are that you have to address. It's, it's an issue which is a daily issue in our operation. When you start an operation in the morning, the question is what is the risk today? And what is the need that we are trying to address? And this is basically the sort of daily bread and butter of a humanitarian organization to make a judgment in a complex situation where the your people are at risk continuously because there is combat, because there is hostility, because you don't have acceptance. So the appreciation of risk is, is, is critical in each and every day and it depends on the reading of the situation and the negotiating landscape which gives us assurances. We don't walk into IS or Nusra or uh, even government of Syria controlled territory as such in the morning because we think that we have to do something. We need to have a license to do what we do and we only have it if we know who is in charge and if we get in contact with them and if we have assurances. So each and every day what we do as a frontline humanitarian responder is really to read the situation. It's a little bit referring to what I alluded to beforehand. This is a complex situation which is different and distinct in each and every place. I was in Homs the other day and, and I, I mean Homs is a is a, a sort of a colorful carpet of organizations which control certain streets and certain blocks and you don't move freely from one to the other and your ability to have security and to mount an operation in one street is dependent on those who carry arms in this street and is dependent on those who carry arms on the way to this street. So you have multiple obstacles and constellations which are continuously <coughs> moving and, and humanitarianism as we practice it and, and, and I say this is not necessarily all organization handle it that way but we, we move by consensus of the arms bearers and the parties to the conflict and otherwise we don't move. Do you have any access to ISL territory or any interactions with them? Because I think part of the implication of that question was yeah. there are some people who are combatants who recognize you and will negotiate with you. IS doesn't sound to me as if their, their love of the Geneva Conventions runs very deep. Am I, it, am I right? Yeah, that's certainly one, <laughs> one issue. Uh, if, if I look at the map of distributions, again, I mentioned briefly, I alluded to it. When I look at our water and sanitation program, they are much larger spread and they are spread including into Islamic State controlled parts of Syria and some of the other opposition groups. So uh, other uh, operations are more difficult to sustain or to mount and presence, permanent presence of uh, staff is difficult to have but then we have partners in the Syrian Arab Red Crescent which has some 
staff on the ground in IS-controlled territory. But just to give you an example, huh, the reality is sometimes more complex and more absurd than uh, what you would think. In a lot of officials of the Syrian government are still living and acting in Islamic State-controlled territory. The water boards are functioning basically in the whole of Syria, whether the authority is the Syrian government, is Islamic State, is al-Nusra or any other groups. Uh, water boards still function in Syria. And water boards are paid by the government of Syria, whether you are in Raqqa, Derezur, Dara, or Aleppo, and whatever part of Aleppo. Some of the teachers are working in Syria, and schools are open in many parts of Syria. Those kids who are still in Syria and haven't fled Syria and who are not necessarily amongst the seven million or something displaced, they go to school. And even some of those who go to school go to school in displaced areas. And some of these areas are under control of the one group or the other. And some of the teachers, despite the fact that they are working under the so-called control of armed groups, are paid by the Syrian governments. Others are paid by the opposition groups. So it's a very complicated and complex situations. And what is maybe challenging and new as a humanitarian operation and how we think about the humanitarian operation in Syria is that this is a this has been a middle-income country, which even today, after five years of war, has a certain degree of market economy even if it's a black market economy. But uh, there is an, a part of Syria where a market provides goods to people in the country. It's not that there is nothing. If there were nothing, people would have died in other numbers that they have died in Syria uh, uh, if we wouldn't have been able to deliver humanitarian services for three, three years, two years, one year in certain parts of Syria. So there is some... There are goods who, who, who are distributed in Syria. But the prices are war economy prices. And so you continuously in have an additional challenge in Syria. You have to design and to target a humanitarian operation, not with regard to nothing, but with regard to something. And you don't know exactly what that something is. And so you have to figure out what the something is in being there and trying to make as precise assessment as possible. But it is a fundamentally different humanitarian operation whether you operate in, this in, in the rural areas of South Sudan or North Central African Republic where this is just poverty and nothing and you can go in with 15 trucks and then there is something. In Syria, the reality is much more complex and different. So we're running out of time. What I'm going to do is take three last questions together and then ask our panelists to respond. So one, two, and three. Hello? Okay. 
My name is Michelle Obrad. I'm an undergraduate at the Pardee School of Global Studies at BU. And my question is that even though the IRC would consider the Syrian crisis more short term compared to other places where the ICRC is deployed, um, at what point do you think that development and livelihood programs should take precedence over the consistent humanitarian action in the surrounding countries? Thank you very much. Okay, second question. Good evening, my name is Armani Kobangi and I work for the program on sexual violence in conflict zones at Physicians for Human Rights. Physicians for Human Rights is currently documenting attacks on healthcare facilities in Syria. And I would like to know if you could please talk about why the Security Council has not acted to prevent these attacks. Is it because of the support of Russia to President Assad? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, last question. Hi, my name is Ali Wine. I'm a first year MPP student here at the Kennedy School. And I was wondering if you might reflect on an observation that Professor Ignatieff made uh, early on in the forum, namely that if we were holding this forum in 1995, there would be much greater agitation for the United States and the international community to do something about uh, the crimes that were occurring in Bosnia. And I'm wondering, based on your experience, what are, the, what are the characteristics of humanitarian crises that tend to elicit more collective action and more public outcry versus others that tend to uh, elicit less reaction? If you might distinguish between the characteristics. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Can I take the, the two first ones? Uh, we try hard as humanitarians to, again, to, s to design sophisticated programs which uh, go beyond short-term emergencies. And we tend increasingly to see how we can contribute at least to stabilize lives and livelihoods in a more sustainable way. This is not always possible, but as humanitarians, we have evolved a lot over the last couple of years in not just doing short-term emergency distribution, but contributing to self-protection, self-reliance, self-responsibility uh, 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 of people and supporting them in their own effort uh, to, to sustain livelihoods. One of the big dilemmas is that in some of the most fragile contexts which are preoccupying us today because of violence and conflicts, development actors are not present. And, and it's one of the most difficult issues. We would advocate for an early presence of development actors in some of the conflicts where we are but most of the time they are not there. And because they are not there, humanitarians increasingly try to reshape and recalibrate their program, which is as such not a bad thing. But what is a problem is that in, in many of the discussions I have seen over the last couple of years, development actors starting with the World Bank and UNDP and national development actors talk about their activity in fragile contexts. But when I visit fragile contexts, unfortunately, they are not there. And everybody knows that good development starts early on. On the, uh, on the second uh, uh, question with regard to the Security Council, uh, there is maybe good news in the pipeline. Uh, 
according to my information, the Council has almost agreed to a resolution on healthcare in danger and protecting health facilities and health work in conflict. And this is very much the result also of the advocacy of many organizations, but also hard documentation that we have brought forward. And I think uh, one of the great work uh, that we and many others, uh, uh, you have, you represent physicians for human rights uh, uh, mentioned beforehand. And we tried to document the enormous impact of violence on health system and the Syrian conflict has been one of the first and foremost in which we were able and have been able to document that violence not only destroys temporary and disrupts services, it destroys systems. And this is the huge impact that we are witnessing today in today's conflicts where hospital and medical workers are increasingly targeted and that's the reason why I think it is important that there is a uh, political action from the Security Council. We have certainly encouraged it and uh, we have on the other side also beefed it up and backed it up by reuniting health professionals worldwide who are uh, associated in different organizations from the surgeons, the medical doctors, the uh, hospital managers, the nurses, in associations worldwide. We have, uh, in a letter to the Security Council, encouraged the Council to take action, and I think, uh, I hope it will come forward in the, in the weeks to come. Thank you very much. Yes, Michael, collective action. Just very briefly on, the, on <coughs> Ali's question, um, my, my sense is that uh, what has happened in Syria is that the Western countries with the capacity to impose a no-fly zone, for example, to do air interdiction, to uh, enforce humanitarian access um, with the assistance of, of military action, um, have drawn the lesson from Libya and from Iraq that any time you go in, the consequences are going to be negative. And I think we're looking at a story in which uh, it is absolutely true that Western uh, military intervention in Iraq and Libya went disastrously wrong. But ironically, one of the places where we may be paying the, pr the people paying the price for that mistake may actually also be the Syrians. If you envisage, and I'm not, at, and the ICRC would never endorse this in a million years, and I don't want to put you in that position, but you could conceive of a situation, the moment has passed in 2012 or 2013, in which you could have imposed a no-fly zone over Syria, with, not with a view to regime change, but simply with a view to, to stopping the atrocious bombardment of civilians. Uh, and you would have done so in order to get the parties back to the table to get a political solution. That's an intervention strategy that might have worked, might have coulda, mighta, 20, in 2012, 2013. It wasn't done because, I think, Western countries looked at Iraq and, and Libya and drew the conclusion that any use of military power would have overwhelmingly negative consequences. So we're in a situation where you're <laughs> damned when you intervene, but let's also be clear, you can also be damned when you don't. And I think there are some sense in which the Syrian story is a story of drawing 
the right lessons from Iraq and Libya, but with very, very tough consequences for the civilian population, which then leaves us with an international intervention that essentially consists of the ICRC trying to bind up the wounds of damaged and uh, uh, traumatized uh, people. And uh, since this is my last word, I think it's important for students to understand that there are a lot of cowboys out in the international humanitarian field, but this is not one of them. These guys are the most professional, most cautious, most serious, most strategic humanitarian actors in the world. And it's an honor to be on the platform with you. Thank you. <laughs>